Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. And what can we say about the 2020 San Marino Grand Prix other than MotoGP just continues to deliver in 2020? On Sunday, we had an aging superstar to turn back the clock to remind us all just of how good he can be. We also had a young, shaggy-haired upstart that shocked the MotoGP establishment. Valentino Rossi and Franco Morbidelli were pretty good at the weekend, but David, that roundup he did on Sunday, absolutely fantastic. And it's probably best that we don't really go into too much detail about why Neil Morrison shocked the MotoGP paddock at the weekend. Gents, what's your big takeaway from the weekend in Mizano? David, you go first. Right. I, I think my my big takeaway from this is just that it's it's absolutely bonkers. There's, I mean, my big takeaway is that there are no big takeaways. You, they're, they're, it's so unpredictable. Uh, you can't tell what's gonna uh, what's gonna happen. Uh, we had what is it? A fourth winner um, um, from six races. Uh, a, a fifth winner yeah sorry yeah a fifth winner and the fourth new winner um a fourth first time winner it's just it's just you know insane really I, I really don't want to put any money on who's going to win the championship neil you're obviously in Mizano and still there as we record this obviously at the MotoGP test on the tuesday but what was your big takeaway from the weekend uh, my big takeaway from the weekend is that uh, the future of Italian racing is in very, very safe hands. We started last week uh, hearing rumors, very, very speculative rumors, I might add, that uh, Valentino Rossi may be going to announce his retirement quite soon. That was obviously complete nonsense. Um, however, when he does eventually hang up his leathers in Franco Morbidelli and Pekka Bagnaia, I mean, we've got two two Italian superstars that are ready to take over his uh, his mantle as a top Italian dog. Yeah, with the rumours, obviously, about Valentino Rossi just coming from different uh, different tweets, basically. And uh, it turns out it wasn't about Valentino. It was about Marco Melandri. And uh, everyone just sort of got their momentum going in the wrong direction. But... Uh, what, what, we'll, what we'll do, David, is we'll look at a few different topics, obviously, from the race weekend. But I want to start with Neil first, because Neil, obviously, as David said, we've had four first-time winners in 2000. But Franco Morbidelli winning, it has to be one of the more popular ones. But before we actually move into that, I wanted to ask you, just for your thoughts, obviously, you're in Mizano. But what did you think of Franco this weekend, where he obviously showed a lot of maturity and he showed... He showed a lot of himself with his helmet choice, with his explanation of it. And I think at the press conference, he he won even more fans. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Franco won last weekend, both on the track and off the track. Um, as you say, he was he was fantastic on it. And how he conducted himself and how he articulated himself was also, uh, I think, a real credit to him. Um, this was just a, a continuation, I think, of what we saw in, in Jerez and in Bernou. Um, that Franco has, you know, he's a, it's taken him two years essentially, but he's now arrived as a, as a genuine force. He's worked extensively over the off season, and by that I mean at the end of 2019, on his physical condition. He seems to be a lot fitter now. He's taking that preparation a lot more seriously, and he's just smoothed out his riding style. And we we know that that's so necessary, so important for the Yamaha M1. And he is no longer suffering from kind of tire degradation issues that were essentially debilitating through the second half of last year and, and as we saw on, on Sunday I mean he was flawless it was a uh, it was the third closest MotoGP top 10 ever sorry the fourth closest top 10 ever the third closest top 15 ever yet Franco was away at the front and won by 2.2 seconds which is a relative age so yeah this was uh, definitely one of those performances where you thought okay this guy's arrived 
David, uh, on Twitter on Sunday, you were talking about how the fact that for a lot of these young riders, one of the big changes that they've had during the course of the last 10 years is that they come in and there's an awful lot more media expectation, an awful lot more pressure to talk to the media. Like if you think back to when you first started in MotoGP or when I first started in MotoGP, you basically talked to the Grand Prix riders from the Premier class. You didn't talk to a Moto2 or a Moto3 rider unless you had to. They weren't put out in front of the media. They weren't trained for all those sort of eventualities. I, I seem to remember Scott Redding in 2013 was one of the first times where he had to come out and talk to the press on a regular basis because the team were getting him ready for being a MotoGP rider. But obviously for someone like Franco, it's it's quite different. Social media plays a role in this as well because uh, the, the, there's just generally more media exposure anyway. Uh, the, the riders are used to not just talking to the media, they're used to sort of uh, uh, having to handle themselves on uh, social media and and that gives them a little bit of an idea of okay this is what what to expect but there's just uh, this just a lot more media exposure of uh, of everything certainly when i came into i mean uh, start going to races maybe 2009 and uh, we would talk at the end of every day we'd talk to maybe six or eight riders now we have to talk to nearly all of them um, you know if we can we also try to talk to a couple of Moto2 riders and maybe a Moto3 rider uh, that was I mean the only time you talked to them was in the press conference previously and that was uh, uh, and that was about it so it was uh, yeah there, there's definitely a huge uh, huge difference I think also if you think of the riders who came into the championship in sort of you know 2000 um, uh, the, the, who now mostly have retired people like Danny Pedrosa but also Andrea Dovizioso um, they came in and they could just come to the track uh, focus on riding all through their 125 and 250 days and it wasn't until MotoGP that they actually had to start talking to journalists a lot so it was uh, it, it really it, the change is just phenomenal Dave, obviously as well, just to go back to Franco's weekend, Neil was talking there in terms of being able to break away at the front of the field and uh, to be able to win by over two seconds. But I wanted to ask you just about this weekend at Mizano, because obviously it was a very unique situation where you've got a brand new track surface, a lot of bumps, and uh, obviously the 2020 Michelin tyre is always throwing up something to uh, get everyone a bit confused. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, actually, there were much, uh, the, there were far fewer complaints about the in the Michelin series, but, but there was a lot of praise for the Michelins precisely because uh, the gaps between the tyres were a little bit, a little bit less, and so all three uh, tyres were usable. All three tyres were raced. Um, we saw Maverick Vinales race the hard. We saw a lot of uh, a lot of people ride the softs. We saw a lot of people uh, uh, racing the racing the mediums. Um, in the end, you could make a case that the that the hard was not the right tire, but it was. Uh, th there's no doubt that it was you know still relatively competitive. So yeah, that made but that makes it more difficult because riders are then actually have to go through all three tires to. to, to figure out which one is going to give them the best performance. Uh, whereas if you arrive at somewhere and you know that you're not going to be able to use the hard, um, you just spend all of your time on the, the, the tire that you think is going to be most competitive and you've got a much better setup. And Neil, obviously, for um, all the riders, we've seen them struggle at different times to, as David said, to make the right decision on tires. For this weekend, obviously, that's going to be a very different situation because they would have been able to use the data from Mizano 1 to build up for Mizano 2. So you'd expect it to be a bit closer at the front. Yeah, I would expect so. Um, mainly because there were two guys that, that really messed their races up and that was Vinales and Quadraro and those were two guys that really really should have been fighting for the win as well. Um, so I kind of fully expect, well, maybe not so much Vinales, but um, yeah, 
Cordero to put that right. Um, yeah, the Suzuki's could possibly get a bit closer to the front as well, and um, yeah, I think it'll I think it'll be tighter. It's also going to be interesting to see what Ducati does. Obviously, you know, Pecco Bagna gets on the on the podium. That gives Ducati some data to work with that they can look at for with Dovizioso, with uh, with Jack Miller, uh, with with even with Petrucci to see, you know, if, if they can make a step forward and be more competitive as well. So yeah, I think it's um um I, I don't think it's it's just going to be you know a, a repeat of this week's uh, result uh, result, but um it, it's going to be an awful lot closer. Yeah, and what we've seen whenever we've had the two back to backs already has been. Quite Quite different results at each of the circuits. Obviously, in Jerez, we were able to see Quattararo win both races, but quite different in terms of how the battle played out behind them. But Neil, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, the VR46 Academy as well. I've got a question for David about it too, but I wanted to ask you about for the young riders coming through, the Moto2 and Moto3 riders, just what sort of influence the Academy has for them. And obviously, for Franco, he's the first of the VR46 riders to win a world championship, the first of them to win a Premier Class Grand Prix. So a good, uh, good starting point to look at how that academy really brings forward and brings through riders. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, there's, there's several several reasons, really. I mean, um, I remember Pekka Banyaya once said it's like the, uh, the kind of the world of Peter Pan. Basically, it's just a, an environment where you are able to train, hang out with, talk to and learn from Valentino Rossi. He's basically got this, this this system where riders can train in lots of different types of disciplines and they can train together. And all of the VR46 Academy riders are now Grand Prix riders, so you're consistently training with exceptionally talented, good riders. Um, and you're basically able to, to, to race against most days and to, to kind of pick the brains off Valentino Rossi I mean like the most experienced rider there is in the entire world um, and then it you know it, it also takes care of other things it takes care of your management it negotiates your contract um, it provides merchandising it provides English lessons to get your language skills much improved and better I mean it's uh, it, it's developed into a pretty um comprehensive network of what is needed to be successful at Grand Prix level um, and if you think of just the amount of time that these guys are spending on bikes I mean it's uh, it, it's quite remarkable um, and, and across all sorts of disciplines dirt bikes motocross road bikes I mean they must have I don't know how many kilometers they've spun at Mizano riding around on R6s or different types of road bikes but that is uh, I mean how crucial is that whenever you're at such a uh, such a young age uh, such a formative age to just have that exposure to not only all these types of disciplines but to a rider of Rossi's experience um, and you know uh, what four guys occupied the, the top two positions in uh, MotoGP and Moto2 I mean the results really speak for themselves David obviously in the uh, in the analogy about Peter Pan, Valentino Rossi is obviously Captain Hook, I, I presume. No, <laughs> uh, no, Peter. Uh, I mean, Peter Pan was the boy who never grows old. Valentino Rossi is quite clearly the boy who never grows old, and he's using this because I mean, yeah, why is Valentino do, Rossi doing this? A lot of reasons. I mean, the one of the primary motivations is absolutely because he saw the failure of the Italian Federation uh, to to stimulate new talent, to promote new talent, to find new talent and to help them get into the Grand Prix uh, uh, paddock. Uh, but the other one is like, you know, racing against hungry 
20-year-olds and 21-year-olds and 22-year-olds. It's a really, really good way to sharpen yourself and to learn new skills and to uh, and to find all these things it's it's um uh, it, he benefits enormously from this just because you know he is being pushed every uh, every day by these young kids who really want to beat him i mean they are really doing their utmost to try and beat him so uh, yeah he, he benefits enormously it actually reminds me a lot of of the setup which they uh, obviously, esports is a big is a big thing, and there's l- these new big um, yeah computer games. There's a lot of money in 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 gaming and in computer gaming and in esports, uh, and they live in very similar. The, the, the big esports teams live in very similar circumstances. They they all live together uh, in you know sort of communal housing. They train together and they play together and they work together, and they're given an environment where they can just focus on their sports, be motivated by the people around them in their sport and it's exactly the same with vr46 i mean they're all living together they can watch their diet they're motivated by having these intensely competitive people around that is it's difficult for them to lose focus they're not you know going out and uh subjects to the temptations of the flesh as uh, we all were when we were their age um uh, which is why we're not grand prix racing yeah dave in fairness i, th- I think grand prix riders might be uh, a little bit more open to the temptations or have more temptations available to them than what we had whenever we were 21 22 they certainly did but uh, i can uh, uh, i i did tend to fall for them a lot more easily than a grand prix race and that's uh, uh, that, that's for sure but yeah i mean you know it just makes it a lot more easy for them to focus on uh, on learning to be motorcycle races Dave obviously for Rossi we've seen over the course of the last few years the VO46 Academy is only part of his extracurricular work we see the merchandise we see rider management we see lots of different elements in it but this weekend again we saw he's still able to get himself to the front that's something that for someone like Peko Bagnaya someone like Franco Morbidelli like they were talking in the press conference just about the inspiration that they get from being able to see just how much that hard work pays off. And that's obviously one of the big things for the young riders to be able to see that if you want to be the best, if you want to get to the top, you need to show that level of dedication. You know, they they stimulate each other. The old the you know the the old dog stimulates the the young kids to make them want to uh, uh, to make them want to beat him. But that pressure that that Rossi feels, that sort of you know that that intense competitiveness that he, that, that he feels, is making him work that little bit harder to uh, to go faster and to keep him fit. And because at forty one years of age, he should. I mean. He has more money than God, and um, could quite easily just go sit on his yacht and uh, enjoy his uh, enjoy his time with his girlfriend. But he loves racing. He wants to race. He's gonna, and as long as he's competitive, he will keep on racing. And uh, I think we saw on Sunday that he's still competitive. And Neil, obviously, just one other question for you, just about this whole situation. Whenever you look at anyone that's really good and really comfortable in themselves, confident in their own abilities, they're always willing to share the secrets of that they're always willing to show how you can get better and that's definitely something that surprised everyone about rossi with the vr46 riders because it does seem that he's pretty much an open book for anything if they've got a question he's not trying to hide hide anything away from them to keep it for himself it's it's fully available for everyone yeah exactly it's quite interesting because i don't well rossi doesn't have any kids and um it does appear that with a lot of the uh academy members he's taken on a kind of paternal role he, he is like there i think franco Morbidelli said on sunday it's like he's uh rossi's his big uncle um he's always there to 
he's like a friend to them, but he also is treated with a kind of respect. They're all in, in kind of awe of him. Um, and I remember when Andrea Migno, another Academy member, won at, at Mugello a couple of years ago in 2017, Rossi said afterwards that it was like uh, it was like watching his son do something. That was the kind of the pride he felt, like it was, uh, yeah, like one, like he was actually one of his kids. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's impressive that he has been such an open book for these guys and he remains to be such an open book for these guys because right now as we saw on Sunday Banyaya and Morbidelli are, are at the point where they are beating him they are costing him good results and MotoGP podiums and he gave quite a funny quote on Sunday he said he was riding around midway through the race just as Banyaya came through and he thought whose fucking bright idea was it to start this academy up again? Just as we move on to a different Yamaha rider and a different Yamaha rider probably also thinking quite a lot during the course of the race weekends about what exactly he was doing. But we saw Franco Morbidelli's star continue to rise at the weekend. But unfortunately, David, we saw Maverick Vinales' star continue to fall. And at this stage, it's not a surprise whenever we see Vinales struggle at the start of races. It's not a surprise whenever we see that he's fast in practice, fast in qualifying, and then struggles for the first half of the race and gives himself too much work to do. Because at the end of the race, he was doing, you know, 32 sevens, I think, 37, 32 eight. He was doing really, really fast laps. Um, but by then, he was, the race was already lost and he seems to find this. He said, it's, it's a, it really is a genuine mystery. He himself was, uh, I don't think I've seen him so dejected since maybe what well, was it Austria 2018 the that that absolutely terrible terrible qualifying performance that they had where he was just saying you know I don't know what I can do um, bike isn't working I can't get it to work um, it, it's always the same I'm fast in practice and then um, uh, we go to the race and uh, something changes and I can't uh, I can't figure it out he wouldn't he didn't blame the tires um, he didn't really want to say anything about whether it was down to the motor two rubber or anything like that it it just seems like his uh he has an idea he has a plan in his head and when the plan doesn't work out he just seems to go to pieces and neil obviously when you look at vinales he's had this issue for years it, it isn't something that's just cropped up but they haven't been able to find any solutions about it you posted one of your blogs from last year talking about this and it could just as easily have been from last weekend yeah, exactly. This is something that Vinales has been complaining about since what, since he joined Yamaha uh, in 2017. Um, you know, 2017 and 18, he, there were mitigating factors. Um, the, the factory was going through a, a tough time. They were lagging well behind Honda and Ducati. Um, they, it appeared, were unwilling to put the right people in the right places to address these issues. There was a there was a fundamental issue within Yamaha, and that was clear. Also in 2018, it was clear that Vinales' relationship with Ramon, Ramon Forcada uh, was completely breaking down. Um, so you could point to them and say, okay, well, maybe if this was changed, you know, whatever, you know, his results would change. But uh, last year, often, and also this year, I mean, we've seen that it's not the bike anymore. And it's also not his crew chief because he's changed with Esteban Garcia and he's still having the exact same issues. He's still at a total loss to, to explain them. And yeah, it's, it's worrying. Um, and you have, to, you have to conclude that a lot of this is uh, an issue with his mentality. You know, it is, it is a problem with his approach, whether it's putting too much pressure on himself, um, not being able to adapt to certain situations in the race, not being strong enough mentally to deal with 
being roughed up and things not going his way to to improvise to change his riding style when it's needed um yeah and it's it's it, it's not good it's not it's really not good because as you said steve it's, it's been going on for a long time and just if i may add i was uh, in conversation with with our colleague and model gp commentator steve day yesterday and he was looking through lap times from the entire weekend quite extensively from each free practice session now Vinales went with the hard rear he was the only guy on Sunday to go with Michelin's hard rear compound tyre Rossi was going to go with it and changed on the grid I think 10 minutes before the race started thinking you know what I think the medium can do the race distance and went on to post a phenomenally consistent race there wasn't one occasion when Vinales was using the hard rear tyre throughout free practice when it didn't take him 10 laps to start lapping in the low 1 minute 33s. And that was basically Morbidelli and Rossi's competitive race pace throughout Sunday's race. So every time Vinales was using the hard rear tyre in free practice, it was taking him 10 laps to lower his pace. Now, he obviously went in there thinking, okay, slow start, but I'll be there at the end. But, I mean, anyone that's watched Maverick over the last three or four years surely would think... He's going to completely fluff it up in the first... If it takes 10 laps for him to start feeling good, you know, the leader's going to be off into the distance and so approved once again. So, you know, I, I don't really know what to say. It's a failure of strategy. It's a failure of of communication. It's a failure of Vinales knowing what he should be doing. Uh, that strikes me as something incredible. And it, it seems like this is... Um, uh, I mean, he could have known this because on Saturday night, Piero Taramasso went through the uh, what, what the various uh, 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 tyres all did. You know, he said they're all three raceable. Uh, the, the the soft is good. The, the, the medium were, were, was good and had good grip. Uh, the, the hard were, had, had excellent traction uh, but took two or three laps to warm up. Um, you know, he knew this, and yet he did this. And this is what I think, what I mean when I say he has a lack of mental flexibility with like, okay, this is this is the way it's going to... He, he thinks that the race is going to play out in a particular way, and when it doesn't play out in a particular way, he's surprised. And I mean, Rossi was asked about this on Sunday, and he said, yes, there does seem to be a pattern that Maverick's so strong in practice and qualifying, he's so strong in testing. I'm almost the reverse of that. I've never been that strong in testing, yet I'm always there on Sunday. But Rossi said, but there is a, there is a very clear mechanical reason for Vinales' performance, which is he chose the hard rear tire. And then we listened to Maverick in his debrief, talking about not having an explanation, not knowing what was going on. And it's like, what? You can't be serious. Yeah, the one thing for me is, like, obviously in, in World Superbikes, we have a pretty similar situation with someone like Tom Sykes, where you see with Sykes that over the years, he's always been super over one lap. He's always been able to be a great rider whenever everything's perfect for him. He's been able to win a world championship. He's been able to win a lot of races. But suddenly, whenever you're, you're in the middle of a battle and you need to be flexible, you need to be able to adapt to things, Sykes has never really had that card. Vinales, Neil, you were mentioning at the start of that about you know, mental strength or fortitude. And David, you're talking about a lack of flexibility. The unfortunate reality of it is, if you look back on Maverick's career, in one two fives, he walked out in the team whenever the pressure built up at the end of a title-challenging season. He's been able to obviously win a Moto3 championship, went right down to the wire, was able to get it done at the last round, went to Moto2, did a good job, went to Suzuki with no pressure on his shoulders, was able to do a fantastic job, went to Yamaha and 
hasn't really lived up to the expectations of what anyone anyone had for him. And David, when you look at it, it's championship that's now as ultra competitive as MotoGP, where everything's so close. Vinales has all the talent and all the speed of anyone that's gone on to win a world championship. But whenever it's this close, it's hard to really see where he can find that because he just doesn't look like he's able to get the gloves off at the start of races. It looks like the team needs to just say, no, this is the strategy we're using. It doesn't matter if you're not comfortable with it because we need to try something completely different. Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly right, Steve. It's uh, uh, it, it, it's that lack of... I mean, he has all the tools. He has the uh, talent. He has the speed. He has the fitness. Uh, he has the understanding of, uh, uh, of what a, mo- a motorcycle can do. I mean, you saw that. You know, he comes into Moto2 and he wins in his first, you know, w- within a few races. That is always a sign of a racer who is extremely talented. Um, he won very, very quickly on the uh, uh, on the Suzuki as well. He was fast straight away on the, uh, on the Suzuki. But um, he doesn't have that kind of uh, ability to adapt to, to changing situations, which is what you see the real great champions do. I mean, if you think about um, Valentino Rossi, the way that he's managed to change his riding style over the years, if you think about uh, Mark Marcus, the way that he's managed to dominate is by uh, understanding how the situation has changed from the previous year or is changing from race to race and adapting a strategy. There will be some races where he will try and lead from the front. There'll be others where he will uh, realize that, okay, I can't get away. What I'll just try and do is stay with the person in front of me and um, uh, and then you know, see what see what's available at, at the at the end, and that is the one thing which uh, which Maverick doesn't appear able to do, and I think that is his weakness. Winning a championship takes a package of of, of lots of different elements, and Maverick Vinales seems to be missing this this vital last element. Yeah, for me, I, I was doing a piece uh, with Alex Lowe's about adaptability and how you have to adjust yourself through a season, through a race, through all the different circumstances that you have. And what Alex said was being fast isn't enough anymore. You need to be a much more rounded package than at any stage previously in, in MotoGP or World Superbikes or any form of racing. Now, you need to be able to maximize everything around you. And David, you were talking there about being able to put together a title charge. Neil, I want to ask you this question first, but uh, being able to put together a title charge seems even harder than usual this year because this is the season where everyone's just had a bit of a nightmare at times. Dovi's leading the championship and he's had an exceptionally ordinary season where everyone's criticizing him. Quattararo was second in the championship, but he's pretty much only scored his points at the first two races in the season. Vinales obviously can't get out of his own way at the moment. Rossi's been able to put together a pretty consistent season without really excelling anywhere. And then when you look at uh, the other riders that are in contention, they're fast one week off the pace the next. Like this is a championship where you couldn't really nail anyone down at the minute, but uh, you also can't really look at it and say anyone's got that particular strength right now. It really does look like being able to put together that consistency is going to be a real challenge. And Fabio showed that again this weekend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Fabio... uh Again, there were there were strange circumstances uh, at play at Brno and also in Austria. Uh, Austria being such a, a desperate track for Yamaha, um, but this was the first real example of Fabio kind of losing his head in a, in a really crucial moment. Um, and to be fair to him, he came out after the race and, and admitted as much. Said that this was down to an experience he had got too excited. Um, the race like we were just mentioning with Maverick, hadn't played out as he was expecting. He got stuck behind Vinales and uh, his front tyre started overheating. 
And uh, when he did eventually get past Vinales, he then saw that Franco and Valentino were disappearing up the road, thought, okay, now is the time to push. But his front tire temperature wasn't what it normally was. And as he tried to push, like I think he said it was like, tried to push like it was the last lap. Um, it all it all went south. And um, yeah, I guess it was a reminder that Fabio is still relatively unexperienced. He's 21 years old. This is still in the first half of his second MotoGP season. Expectations are so much higher now. We're looking at him as he's not leading the championship anymore, but previously the championship leader, possibly the favorite to win the championship. That brings a whole other slew of, uh, of pressures that he puts on himself that people are putting under him and yeah it uh, it all went a bit uh, all went a bit south from um, and yeah where we are seeing we are seeing I guess a, a few of these flaws because last year everywhere we went it seemed after Hareth he was really fast and he was riding without pressure with a smile on his face but it's just a little bit different now and as we've seen with this Michelin rear tire for 2020 it's not quite as straightforward and you do have to mentally prepare yourself for weekends which are going to be really bad or not to your expectation. And yeah, he hasn't quite shown that mental toughness, I think, so far to um, well to lead the championship. David, obviously for Quadraro, this is, as Neil said, a very unique situation because over the last few years, he's had no pressure, whether it was coming into MotoGP or whenever he went to Moto2, even nearly by the end of his Moto3 career, everyone had sort of already written them off. So last year was the year where he was able to be really free. He was able to ride like he wanted. He was able to do it where everything he did, he was doing with house money. Whereas now for the first time since, you know, early 2016, he's got all that pressure, all that expectation back. And other than what we saw in Hareth, it's been a struggle for him. What's the what's the big reasons for that, do you think? Uh, well, I mean, look, as you say, like other than a Jerez, but I think that's really important because if you look at uh, what he what he did in uh, Jerez was you know he came in as the championship leader and he left or he came as the cha- in the in as the championship um, uh, favourite and two weeks later he left as uh, the championship leader where having won both races so it, it's not that he can't cope with the pressure I think at Bruno um, if you look at where he was you know not very good uh, Bruno and Austria none of the MRs were very good there you know nobody really um, uh, performed well there with the exception well Morbidelli uh, yeah yeah apart from yeah Mor- Morbidelli had a good ra- race and Valentino Rossi too I mean Valentino Rossi he also had a um, uh, 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 did quite well in in Austria. Uh, um, that's just experience. So I I'm not sure that it's pressure. I, he had a fant- I mean, Fabio Quartararo had a he had a fantastic quote um, uh, on Sunday night. He said, at the, um, uh, "At the end, you can be fast, you can have everything, but you can't buy experience." Um, that's that's exactly it. He has to he has to sort of like face all of these things to to understand it. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, his crash was just his own fault. He was, he, he, you know, he said himself he was very very honest about it. He uh, uh, got stuck behind Vinales, and when he was after he was stuck by, behind Vinales, he pushed on too hard, trying to make up too much time too early in the race, uh, uh, and and lost the front, and that was it. Dave, you can't buy experience and you've been trying to sell it for years <laughs> and it just doesn't work that way either. But let's look at uh, let's look at a team that's been trying to 
by experience over the course of the last few years. Ducati, obviously, we've seen them struggle this year at times with inconsistencies. We've seen Dovi very inconsistent. But um, before we talk about Paco Bagnaia and his podium and uh, and uh, how good he was this weekend, what was your thoughts on Jack Miller and Dovi through this weekend? Obviously, Petrucci had an absolute nightmare, but there's, there was some pretty tough circumstances for Danilo. I think, I mean, you know, uh, apart from Pekka, Pekka had a fantastic, I mean, this was a really, really important weekend for uh, for, for, for Pekka Banyai, I think. But if you look at um, uh, Jack Miller, uh, Jack Miller basically said, you know, the, 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 he chose the wrong tyre and he couldn't get the tyre uh, to work properly. He was, he was quick um, at the start, but just couldn't make, uh, couldn't make the front work. Andrea Dovizioso, again, he is just struggling with trying to get the rear tire work. He's still trying to get his head around the uh, uh, the rear Michelin. The rear Michelin won't work. It was also very interesting to see Claudio Domenicali um, posting on Twitter on Sunday night, uh, uh, showing uh, Bagnaia's riding style, hanging off the bike, and saying, "This is how you need to. Uh, this is how you need to ride the the, the Ducati." Um, which was uh, a bit uh, a bit harsh on Dovizioso, considering it's now Dovizioso actually leading the championship. But perhaps there is something in that. I mean, you know, Bagnaia seems to have a different riding style. He seems to be more on the front. He seems to push the front tire a little bit more, and so not seem to rely quite so much on the rear. And that's helping him uh, go fast. That's also what the Yamahas do. And the Yamahas were obviously really, really quick around uh, around Misano, as were the Suzukis. And Neil, the reason that I wanted to ask Dave that question was that I wanted to ask you about the young riders coming through, because obviously in your role with Moto2 and Moto3 commentary, you've had to spend a lot of time over the last few years looking at the young riders coming through. But uh, for our podium finishers, we had Franco Morbidelli, we had Paco Bagnaia, and we had Joan Mir. And I wanted to ask you just what were your thoughts on, especially Morbid, uh, especially on uh, Bagnaia and Mir, because their progress through the field was really impressive. And when we looked at them in the junior classes, obviously they were standout talents, but uh, their rides this weekend were about more than just speed. They were about being able to manage a situation. They were about being consistent and they were able to really take the long-term view all the way through the race. Yeah, absolutely. There were two outstanding rides um, by both uh, Bagnaia and Mir, uh, particularly Bagnaia coming back from a uh, nasty leg break that he suffered well, just a month ago, really, um, in FP1 at Brno. Um, this has, okay, Ducati won here in 2018, but in terms of layout, you wouldn't say that this is a, a real Ducati track. Um, and uh, yeah, Banyaya was just, uh, you know, how far back he came as well to fight um, at the front was, was quite remarkable. Um, and yeah, he clearly, his riding style, his means of braking, um, and as Dave said, carrying using the front a bit more, carrying a bit more corner speed, just seems to be to be working. Um, also, the fact that he kind of has less experience in the classes, his his views on how something should be ridden are less um, enforced. You know, Davizioso was what thirty four, changing your riding style gets a little bit more difficult as you get older. Um, and one of the things Davizioso was saying on Friday is just every single track that we arrive at. It's not that you're having to continue your riding style adaptation from the previous circuit. You're having to adapt completely, completely differently from zero and start completely from zero with bike setup as well, for him anyway. And because he said that how the Midland rear tire reacts to each different temperature and track surface layout is, is just kind of baffling him at the moment. And um, yeah, to go back to your question, Steve, you know, Banyaya, 
when you look at the, the issues that Petrucci Miller eventually and Davizioso had, I mean, his his um, his performances have been all the more impressive. And uh, well, I mean, that's pretty much a that's Neil Timon, I think, to to get that second factory seat for next year alongside Jack Miller. And I, I hate to say it because I'm one of Davizioso's biggest fans, but if you're Claudio Domenicali, you're maybe looking at the situation thinking, you know what? Davizio's are leaving and Banyaya stepping up to the factory team is actually going to work out all right for us. Yeah, and I think that one of the big things is that obviously throughout the course of the season so far, we've been talking a lot about Davi and Ducati and saying that you know the best option for both of them is to stay where they are. But Davi's not getting his head around that rear Michelin and uh, you're going to have to pay him more than you'd have to pay Paco. Paco's a young Italian on the rise and uh, it certainly now that he's been able to back up what he showed at particularly Hareth where he was able to qualify really well he's able to have you know his first MotoGP podium he's clearly on the rise David and uh, certainly there can be no real qualms about Ducati opting to put Bagnaia on the bike if he's able to maintain this kind of form. Afterwards, so Gigi Zellini says, you know this is a decision we're going to make uh, after Barcelona but if you just looking at this result um, and also looking at what happened at, um, at Jerez because, you know, Banyaya was on for a podium at, uh, at, uh, at Jerez until his engine let go uh, the, at Jerez too. Um, he was also fast in the first half of the race there as well. Um, so it looks like he's really made a, made a step. He said that he'd... Um, uh, uh, he uh, Thailand last year he had to change it, it came as a sort of a turning point it was at the point at which he realised he had to change his riding style uh, he had to accept that uh, he had to ride uh, ride the Ducati like a Ducati um, he certainly uh, made that he started working on braking really really hard um, and uh, sort of trying to do that with the bike and that's Clearly, that has worked. And I think you choose Banyaya over Zarco because Banyaya is, what, 23, 24, I think. Um, and uh, Zarco is in his, he's, he's in his early 30s. Uh, it, it, there's just a lot more potential with Banyaya. And Banyaya is showing it. He would have to have an absolutely disastrous um, uh, next couple of weeks not to get the factory ride. Yeah, I found it interesting when Zarko was talking at the weekend about how I've got as much experience as Davi and I should be the factory rider. And you're kind of there. I don't know. Most of your experience is in 125s and Moto2. It's not like Davi where you've got 12, 13 years experience on the Premier class. So certainly for me, if I'm given the choice between Zarko and Bagnaya, I'd be, I'd be taking Paco just because he's younger for one thing. But also Zarko had an opportunity with a factory team, struggled with the pressures that come on a rider with the factory team and i think that zark was probably a little bit more suited to being in somewhere like prama yeah i mean the the, the thing with banyaya is uh i mean with zarko you know you you can sort of take an educated guess at where his ceiling is at, at what his potential is the thing about banyaya is you know he's still young we don't know what his potential is you don't know how far he can go and it looks like uh, he, he could go a very long way so it's a simple bet it's, it's betting it's either you know playing it safe or taking a gamble on something which looks good and could end up being really 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 good. Neil, obviously, this weekend we had confirmation that Ania Bastianini is going to move up to the Premier class next year. We did indeed, yep. It looks as though Bastianini will be rising up from Model 2 into 
the uh, Eastport Sorama Racing uh, Ducati team, as it's called now. It used to be formerly Irvintia. Um, and uh, yeah, good move, I think. Um, Bastia has been has been magnificent this year. He scored two really, really impressive victories. Um, and I think his talent is beyond question. Um, we saw that just how quickly he adapted to Model 3 when he stepped up to the World Championship in 2014 and how quickly he adapted to Model 2. Um, it's taken him just uh, over a season to become now a, a certified title contender. And he could yet win the championship this year. Um, so, yeah, stick him on a, in a, on a Ducati um, next year and I think he'll be a pretty strong proposition after maybe three quarters of a season i've got a question for you neil um uh, if you had to choose luca marini or enea bastianini who do you choose that is a tough one david um i believe i would probably go for bastianini just because i think his his talent is is in a is raw is, is probably greater marini is very impressive in how he handles himself how intelligent he is and obviously his speed on track as well as Sunday just showed. But I think in terms of raw ability, um, there's probably more. Uh, Bastianini's ceiling is probably higher, I reckon. And if you can get the right people around him, I think, yeah, he could go a bit further. And uh, David, just a question for you as well. And obviously, because we're looking at these young riders when they come through, it was interesting for me that uh, Mir and Bagnaya, both on the podium this weekend, Whenever we go to Valencia for the end of season tests, or it'll probably be Jerez this year, we always go out and have a look at the young riders for how are they adapting on their first day on the bike, their second day, and their, and then to see what happens a week later when there's usually another test. But I remember whenever we were at Valencia for both of those guys' first days out on the bike, both of them really impressed us right from the outset. Obviously, last year, there were some setbacks for both of them, and it's taken Bagnaya a bit longer than we expected to really show his, his full potential. But we were able to see pretty much straight away that they were comfortable on a MotoGP bike. And that's always the the big marker that you take just for whenever riders make that step up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I remember going out, out and watching Paco Bagnaia on the Aspar Ducati um, uh, when he was still in Moto3. I can't remember what year. It would have been 2018, 2017 maybe, because he got he got to ride that bike at the test. And he looked really, really good on, the, uh, uh, on that bike. Even though he was coming straight off a Moto Three, uh, um, uh, straight off a Moto Three bike, uh, he, he was obviously taking you know Moto Three lines rather than Moto GP lines, uh, but still he was just a couple of seconds off the uh, off the fastest time and was clearly capable of, of doing something a bit special. So, yeah, you know it, and it's the same with Mir. I mean, you know, Mir went up to Moto Two and was immediate, immediately successful. He was very unlucky to have a huge crash last year at the test in Brno, uh, which I think actually sort of disguised a lot of his talent it slowed him down a lot in the uh, in the second half of the championship last year um and now we're really seeing him come into his own because you know alex rins has got his hands full uh with his uh with his teammate and you really wouldn't want to take a bet on who finishes uh, uh you know best suzuki rider this year yeah it's really interesting whenever you see which teams those young riders come through from as well because the team team's team tends to make a big difference Neil as well to see like who's got that good grounding and that's where it was interesting to see that like Franco and for Joao Mir both of them coming through from the Mark VDS Moto2 team and it really is a case of if you're at one of those top teams in Moto2 especially that you can adapt a lot easier but they also seem to teach you an awful lot about the processes that are needed for being in that uh, premier class as well. 
Absolutely, yeah. And uh, from here, I mean, Suzuki has shown since it came back into MotoGP in 2015 that it is a fantastic environment for rookies, guys with limited experience, no experience in MotoGP machines. We've seen now Vinales, Rins and Mir come up to speed and, well, Mir hasn't quite scored his first victory yet, but you would not be surprised if he scored it in the next couple of races, such as his speed. I think he's the highest point score over the past three races. And, um, you know, his qualifying still isn't great, but, I mean, he's, he's one of the strongest guys at the end of the race. Um, and I don't know, like, do we, are we tipping Mir for the title here? Because I look at the, I look at the Vizioso ahead of him and I think, okay, he hasn't really progressed from Jerez in terms of how comfortable he is in the bike. You look at Quadraro and a bit hot-headed, probably the quickest guy in the class at the moment, but there's been a lot of mistakes coming into his game. And then Jack Miller in third. I mean, Jack, uh, I think, has made another step this year and, and is, is showing well, but I don't know if I could see Jack win the championship. Mir, though, I'm starting to think, you know what, we could, we could have a, a proper title challenge here from Joan Mir. Yeah, and I think especially after what we saw, David, in Austria from Mir, where he could easily have won a race already. And you certainly think that he's going to be able to carry this form forward, obviously into this weekend at Mazzano as well, but going forward as well. A lot of the tracks are going to suit that Suzuki. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, next weekend, you would expect uh, Mir to be, you know, just at least as strong. Um, although the competition might change a little bit around it. Uh, Barcelona, that's going to be a good track for the Suzuki. Aragon is going to be a good track for the Suzuki. Uh, I think Valencia is not a good track for anyone, so it's anyone's uh, anyone's guess. Um, and Portimao is a complete wildcard. We have no idea. So, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think Juan Mir is the uh, is in with a shot with the, with the for, for the title, but I... I still, I mean, my my, my gut feeling is that uh, this championship is still Dobby's for the taking. Just because he's so good at being consistent, his bad, his bad days are still the best of the lot. Um, you know, if you look at what other people have done, they've all had DNFs. Um, they've all had at least one DNF. Uh, they've managed to finish outside the top 10, you know, sometimes sort of 13th, 14th. Um, and Dovi just manages to grind out results on bad days, which is why we're seeing leaning. But then I was looking at the, uh, uh, comparing the championship points from between this year and last year. Uh, Dovi Chioso at this time last year, after six races, had 103 points and he's got 76 now. Uh, but he's leading the championship championship with 176 or with with 76 points uh, which is 39 points less than Mark Marquez had at the same time last year when he was leading the championship so it's just the, the you know how close it is and how uh, people are just not scoring points and so I think it's going to end up being consistency and if it's a battle of consistency it's really hard to bet against Andrea Dovizioso. Yeah, Dobby, the only rider to score points in every race. But I want to ask you both a question now, actually, just in light of what you said there, David, about like how close the championship is and how anything can happen. Is this actually a good championship? Because it's very random at the minute, and we're tending to see guys yo-yo up and down the field. Is that a sign that the championship's really good or a sign that there's something missing for a lot of people? Well, I mean, what's what's missing is Mark Marquez, obviously. Yeah, I mean, how different would the championship be with Mark Marquez? You know, but I mean, apart from the fact that he would probably be leading it, the 2020 Honda looks to be terrible, judging by everyone else. You know, I mean, it's basically broken Cal Crutchlow. Uh, he had to have an, an operation with uh, for his arm pump. 
Um, uh, Alex Mark is complaining about the same. The bike is unpredictable over the bumps. You know, it does it does different things every uh, every lap. So it's just it, it it's a really really difficult bike to ride. So we have no idea what what he would be. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's certainly it's a really fun championship. Is it a good championship? I think that's a good question. I think it's I think it's really difficult to say. But then, you know, like, all right, Mark Marquez isn't here, but, you know, he broke himself. He fell off. It's his own fault. And you can only race against the riders uh, who actually line up on the grid at the time. Yeah, for me, definitely. I, I wouldn't think anything in line with those comments that Pooch made about the championship being devalued. It isn't devalued because you're not going to get an asterisk beside whoever wins this championship. But I think for me, it's just strange to see just how random it is. It, this strikes me as being a bit like the first year of a big tire change or the first year of a massive regulation shift before we really find the balancing point. So for me watching, it's just, it's very random, which makes it very hard to gamble on, which is why I'm just a little bit annoyed about it. <laughs> but uh, Neil, what's uh, what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, I would uh, I would kind of agree with David to be honest because it's it's amazing it's it's really fun um, yeah the the kind of unpredictability of it is is great after let's be honest three years where you knew uh, that one guy was always going to be in the victory fight and last year probably always going to win um, and if not win finish second um, so yeah I'm loving this kind of this unpredictability some people said that after doing retired things were things were a bit rubbish because the times and race times slowed down a massive extent um, and they were right but I still think 2000 was one of the funnest most memorable seasons I can remember in history just because it was completely random there were eight different winners that year and um, yeah it's not as if we're, we're dealing with with idiots here we're dealing with a new generation coming through and they're basically the king isn't there at the moment and they're all vying for you know the next step up to to be the to be the king and you know you, you've seen the likes of i was doing a writing a blog on this today and you know I, I wrote that sunday seemed like the arrival the official arrival of franco mobidelli as a force in this championship but this year i've also said that about joan Mir, brad binder fabio Quartararo. Miguel Oliveira, Pekka Banyaya. I mean, so you've got six really, really exciting guys coming through this year, either in their first or second years, third year for Franco. And yeah, they're, I mean, they're the, the stars of the future. So yeah, I think this is going to be, it'll always be remembered as a strange year. And yes, Midland's reattire and Marquez's absences, I think, created this unpredictability, this uncertainty. But uh, it's great. I mean, it, it only happens once every in normal circumstances, once every five or six years, or maybe longer, after, I guess, you'd have to go back to 2016 for it to be this up and down, and then before that, it was probably back in, back in, what, 2000? So yeah, these are, or maybe 2006. So yeah, these are, these don't come along that often, so let's enjoy it. Yeah, to me, it seems like the big difference this year is the, is the people making mistakes. There seem to be a lot of riders making mistakes this year, which is the, which is the difference. Um, maybe that's, as you say, Neil, uh, you know, lots of young riders, they are less experienced. And so, you know, they can be really strong at one, at one racetrack and not so strong at the other. Maybe it's just that, you know, they were all off the bike for such a long time, uh, that they've sort of got a little bit, um, 
I don't know, they've lost something. They've lost some kind of concentration, some kind of focus, something else. And this is what's, what's causing the problem. But yeah, this, the, 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 I mean, you know, like 2020 is a weird year full stop. So why would it be any different in MotoGP? Yeah, very much so, Dave. But uh, it's a weird year, obviously, because of everything that's gone on with COVID-19. But Neil, this weekend or last weekend, we actually saw the first time where it's impacted who's actually been able to race. Because in Moto2, Jorge Martin wasn't able to race after a positive test. Exactly, yep. Uh, Jorge Martin was, well, he had to stay back in Spain uh, after, a, after a positive test of COVID-19. And that is a major championship player in, uh, in one of the three categories that we have. Um, and with it being the home race of Bastianini, Bezzecchi and Dan Marini, I mean, uh, it's taken a massive, uh, has had a massive effect on Martin's championship after the momentum he had built up in Austria. So I think Valentino Rossi at one point said this weekend that it was only a matter of time until someone in MotoGP uh, or in this paddock, a high-profile name in this paddock, contracted it. Um, I think you look around Western Europe and you wouldn't say that the virus is under control in the majority of countries in Western Europe. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an issue and, you know, hopefully we don't see this again. Hopefully this isn't going to impact on, on other championships. David, um, just a question for you, because obviously we're watching from home. Neil's in Misano, but, uh, and, and Neil, I'm ashamed to admit this. I was watching quite a bit of the BT coverage over the course of the weekend. I wasn't watching uh, you on the world feed at different times, but uh, I was flicking between them both. And uh, at one stage, David, Neil Hodgson was talking about how this could be a season where it's worth dropping the scores from one round for each rider because Martin is obviously the prime example of how he's going to miss a race because of having a positive test. It wouldn't be beyond the realms of what we've seen in MotoGP in the past where you did drop scores because for travel restrictions, maybe you didn't want to race behind the Iron Curtain or different things like that. There were times where in all forms of racing, it was your best six scores from eight or your best eight from 10 that counted for a championship. Do you think is that a a valid idea for this season or is that taking things a little bit far? As a rule, I hate the idea for for, for a normal season. I hate the idea. I mean, you, you know, you, you wouldn't do it. You couldn't imagine in the Premier League uh, people saying, well, you know, our, our worst game was against, I don't know, whatever, Liverpool or whatever, or Man City. And so uh, we're just going to drop that, those scores, which puts us at the top of the, uh, at the top of the championship, which is, you know, it's just nonsense. So, um, as a rule, I'm against it, but actually this year might be a year where it might be worth Certainly thinking about precisely because of the these very, very odd circumstances against that, you could say that, I mean, look, obviously you can't be, you know, you're not responsible if you, if you, or, or it's very difficult to, 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 to not get the, the, the virus sort of thing, but you have to be able, you have to do everything possible to actually get it. I believe if I remember correctly, Jorge Martin actually caught it from his girlfriend, uh, who caught it from someone else. And so I think part of being a world champion is trying to control all of the environmental factors that you can. Um, and if you do that correctly around, uh, uh, around the coronavirus, then you should be able to uh, uh, prevent it. So it's one of these debatable things. I have a lot of sympathy for the idea. Um, I would be very afraid of the precedent which it sets. Yeah, and obviously it's a tricky one for riders, David. Like you said, riders have to be careful with what they're doing. But now an awful lot of riders are basically limiting themselves to training outside. They might go for a coffee, they might go for dinner, but they're not going on 
they're not going on holidays they're not going to put themselves into too many extreme places and neil that's the big challenge for everyone in in moto 2 moto 3 moto gp world superbikes british superbikes whatever championship you're in it's just to try and minimize any of the risks yeah and if you look at the calendar certainly the period when it was most likely to get COVID has passed because that was the the two-week break that we had after the the second race in austria uh, before we came here but from now until the end of the season i mean we don't really have a chance for to, to go to wherever Mallorca or whatever your holiday destination is because we've got what, eight races in ten weekends coming up um, so so yeah it's one of those risks because I mean so far we've only had one guy affected by it in what 75 races in, in Grand Prix if you include Moto E what 80 85 90 races so unless it became like a big thing whereby you know one in five people were affected by it and, and having to miss races then yeah uh, i i don't think uh, i don't think that's viable and just to move on to a different topic then within moto 2 obviously we we talked briefly there about Ania bastianini and he was able to come away with a podium at the weekend neil but his ride was really impressive recovered well at the end of things but the vr46 riders out in front in moto 2 were really impressive marini and bezaki yeah, it was a really impressive performance from all three of the, the kind of leading Italians in, in Moto2 on Sunday. Um, I think Marini rode exceptionally well, um, Bezecchi as well, and uh, and of course Bastianini, Bastianini in particular for his uh, Mark Marquez-esque uh, front-end save that he made down at turn eight. Um, you know, picked the thing up on his elbow and then not only did that, but pretty much recovered to fight back and, and basically get within a a whisker of uh, taking Bezeki for second place in the final lap. So, um, yeah, all those guys are in a really good position. Um, and I think it's going to ultimately go down to title fight between Marini, Bastianini for, for the championship. Um, obviously, there's, there's no word yet on, on when Jorge Martin will, will come back. We don't know whether he's going to come back for, for this weekend's action. Um, and if he's not, I would say that's him pretty much out of the title fight. Um, so, yeah, it should be, should be fun. should be interesting times ahead. David, just one last question for you before we move on to winners and losers. Losers, um, I wanted to ask you just about uh, Sam Lowe's in Moto2 because it was quite an interesting race, obviously, for him having to come back through the field after starting from the pit lane. But uh, there was a, a lot of confusion on Twitter after the race about why he was held for as long as he was. But can you just walk everyone through the regulations for starting from the pit lane? Basically, the regulations are that you get held for five seconds after the last bike passes pit lane exit um now that can vary hugely from track to track uh like at valencia uh it, it starting from pit lane is almost not a penalty because you're so you, you're so close the uh, pit lane exit basically exits directly out onto the track and pit lane the, the end of pit lane exit is the entrance to to, to turn one um at misano i think think um uh pit lane exit is actually past the first chicane and you exit onto sort of turn three and so you know a, a lot of bikes have to get through some very tricky corners before they can actually let anyone out so you get held back a very very long time but for for sam lowe's to come through i mean i i think he showed everyone how annoyed he was with his penalty by first of all taking pole and then riding an absolutely fantastic race to come through the field and uh, finish what i think eighth um it, just a, a really really strong performance and it's going to make it's going to make it interesting to see what he can do uh, next week as um 
Neil was saying about the the you know Moto Two teams, uh, there are all of these riders come from the same teams. Mark VDS is absolutely one of the one of the teams, and it's clear that um, uh, Sam Lowe's is really coming into his own being in the Mark in the Mark VDS teams. But the other teams are like you know Pons and Speed Up. Uh, those three teams together, um, Aspar to an extent as well. Uh, the, they are producing all of the talent which is coming into into MotoGP. And uh, Neil, we're going to finish off as we usually do with winners and losers. I'm going to come to you first, but uh, who's your big winner from the San Marino Grand Prix? Uh, my big winner, Steve, is Pekka Banyaya, just because it was uh, his comeback ride from, from a pretty nasty leg injury. Um, he was far from fully fit. That much showed in how he began to fatigue towards the end of the race, and he kind of fell back into the grasps of, uh, grasp of Rossi and Mir, Rins. Um, and he did that at a, at a tight and twisty track that really shouldn't be um, good for Ducati. Not only shoot, uh, showed the rest of the Ducati guys up, but he pretty much cemented his place in next year's factory Ducati team. So all in all, a pretty, pretty emphatic performance from, uh, from Peko. So uh, yeah, really, really good stuff from him. Dave, Neil's picked the easiest big winner of the weekend. Who's yours? Uh, no, uh, Neil hasn't picked the easiest big winner of the weekend because I'm going to pick the be, uh, easiest big winner of the weekend, which is Franco Morbidelli uh, for the way he won that race because uh, he led, uh, you know, lights the flag. And he, it, just the way that he that, that he won. He, sure, Valentino Rossi had a, a, put him under pressure uh, Morbidelli never faltered, he never failed, and then he just pulled away and went on to control. And actually, leading like that can be much more difficult. Winning um, your first MotoGP race, you're clear. It's easy to lose focus, make a mistake, and uh, sort of get uh, get caught out, which is a little bit of what we saw in the Moto2 race. Um, but um, it, it was just really, really impressive. Also, the way that he held himself throughout the weekend. He was calm. He was focused. There's a lot of pressure. It's his home race as well. Um, so, yeah, for me, I think uh, uh, I think Franco Morbidelli is, um, uh, is the big winner out of this weekend. And who's your big loser, Dave? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Steve... Who's your big winner? Who's my big winner? Okay, well, obviously, Dave makes a very compelling point about Franco. Peko did very well. Juan Mir did very well. I'm, I'm actually going to pluck for Lowe's and Moto2, just because this was a weekend where, in the past, all those circumstances could have got the best of him, and he could have gone out and had a terrible weekend. Instead, he ended up showing everyone how fast he was over a single lap to take the pole. He was then able to go out and raced through the field he was able to set the same lap times as the race leaders despite having to overtake someone on pretty much every lap and uh, to come away with top 10 finish from the back of the grid or from starting from pit lane i think uh, for me that's the the big winner just to be able to to come through it and keep his head above water all the way through so dave who's your big loser from the weekend i mean the obvious answer is honda dave we can use that for pretty much every weekend this season let's just discount honda yeah, well, yeah. Neither Repsol Honda rider managed to score a point. 
um, uh, Takanakagami actually had a really good race, um, uh, but he still only managed to finish uh, uh, ninth, I think, eighth, ninth. Um, it, it it was just a it, it well it, you know the nightmare continues that and they need to fix the bike. Um, Mark Marcus being absent means that they're being shown up. Who Cal Crutchlow couldn't race because he had to have um arm arm pump surgery, uh, uh, which left him with a massive amount of fluid on his arm and just made it completely impossible for him uh, for him to race. So uh, yeah, and that's. That's because the Honda is so physical, so difficult to ride. You can't ride it without suffering arm pumps. So, yeah, I mean, my loser is Honda, and it'll probably be, you know, for the rest of the season, it's likely to be Honda until Mark Marcus comes back because they've built a bike which nobody except Mark Marcus can ride, and Mark Marcus isn't here. So, Neil, in the winners in Honda stakes, who's your biggest Honda? I mean, biggest uh, loser of the weekend? (laughs) Um, I'm going to go for Cordero. Just because I think this was the this, the track where we thought he was going to get his, his season back on track. Um, these were conditions that he should have been strong in, um, but he fluffed his start from the front row of the grid. Um, he was unable to get past Maverick Vinales early in the race, and then he just had a very inexperienced moment where he got too hot-headed, too overexcited, threw it down the road. And yeah, lost the championship lead with it. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, we do have to remind ourselves that he's 21, but a pretty big mistake. And I personally had him slated to put him down for the the championship win. But after this weekend, I'm not so sure. Well, I have to say for me, the biggest loser is actually probably going to be me just because I did just forget completely that Franco Morbidelli had won the race after you were talking about Pekka Bagnaya being the biggest winner. So I'll definitely hold my hands up for that one. In terms of what we saw on the track, Davi for me, because it became pretty clear that Ducati have an easier decision to make for uh, going forward for what they want to do and they can justify it a lot easier. But uh, I think the biggest loser for me is probably Jorge Martin just for the reasons we were talking about earlier on about how having to sit out this round potentially coming back for Mizano too but he's going he's fallen what 35 points adrift the VO46 riders are so consistent it's going to be tough for him to make up that ground and uh, for me that's where he becomes the biggest loser of the weekend and it's just it's it's circumstances it's unfortunate but uh, that's the realities of racing really so Definitely for me, Jorge Martin. Just uh, one last question for both of you guys before we uh, close up the show. Neil, obviously you're in Mizano. You're at the test today. That's why we can hear the bikes in the background. But what do you think um, for this weekend? Are we going to see anything a little bit different or is it just going to be everyone fine-tuning things? Uh, I think it's going to be everyone fine-tuning things. Um, Yeah, as we mentioned earlier in the show, the two double-headers at the same circuit that we've had so far this year have led to fairly different results in the second race. Um, And I think, yeah, I I could... I still think the Yamahas are going to be exceptionally strong, but I can see Suzuki getting a little bit closer. Um, I can also see Pekka Banyaya perhaps being a little closer and more competitive. And KTM, I mean, KTM had a, their most anonymous weekend of the season um, at Mizano 1. Um, we had sort of been bigging them up after Austria saying that they had a bike that could work 
any circuit, any condition, but they, they weren't quite at the races on, on Sunday. We've had a test here. I think Paul Asparger has had a new chassis to test. I think Brad Binder's maybe been testing that new chassis this afternoon. Um, and yeah, I think uh, we might see KTM get a little bit closer. I mean, KTM had a bad weekend, but Paul Asparger was still 10 seconds or maybe 12 seconds off the race winner on Sunday. I mean, that's not a gargantuan margin. So perhaps we'll see some KTMs um, closer to the top six. Uh, on Sunday. We saw with Paulus Bagaro as well that he was, I think, best part of 30 seconds faster than last year. Obviously, you've got a new track surface and different things, but definitely a good sign of the improvements that they've made. David, just for you, obviously, um, looking forward to this weekend, is this the weekend where Joan Mir can pick up that race win? Neil was saying earlier on that he's been the best scorer over the last three rounds. He's been consistently at the front. Is uh, this weekend coming going to be his opportunity or is it going to be a, a step too far? I think it's going to be difficult because I think Fabio Quattararo is going to be much stronger. He's not going to make the same kind of mistake as he did last uh, uh, as he did last week. Um, uh, Quattararo has shown that he learns from his mistakes. This was a big mistake, and he's um, and it's one that he, that he's definitely going to learn from. So uh, I really expect to see Quattararo at the front this weekend. I'm intrigued to see what happens with uh, with Maverick Vinales because you know this is something we've we've talked about a lot uh, that that he seems to get. Uh, his his head seems to go, so it's going to be interesting to see what what happens there. But yeah, Juan Mir, if I mean like Juan Mir is going to be in the mix. He is going to be uh, someone to really keep an eye out, and that's going to be it's going to be absolutely fascinating to watch. Okay, well it's uh, been fun listening to both of your thoughts on the last weekend, and obviously this weekend coming is going to be an interesting weekend. We've got back to back rounds for MotoGP at Mizano. We've got a double header for World SBK also taking place next weekend in Catalonia. So next week's show is going to be pretty action packed because obviously with both of you guys talking about what happens in Mizano, Gordon Ritchie will be back to get us up to speed on what's happening in World Superbikes as well. Gordo's riding around northern Spain at the moment, so he's having a, a bit of a, a riding trip through uh, Europe during each of the gaps between the races. So he's really enjoying that. But uh, for next... Poor guy. Yeah, it's, it's, I'll tell you what, he's got a tough Gordo, you know. But uh, for the gap until then, obviously we've been able to sit down with Eugene Laverty for a Patreon special. So on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, Eugene was talking to us about the news that he was leaving BMW uh, his plans for the future and just uh, where he is right now so for three dollars a month you can listen to that and the plan is to have a lot more patreon only content as well to be able to try and get a little bit more insight for all of our patreon supporters you can follow us on twitter at paddock pass pod and obviously with such an action-packed weekend if you want to drop us a tweet if you want to drop us a comment we're able to then try and include that in next week's show so if you've got any questions over the course of the race weekends just make sure to tweet at paddock pass pod David, you're going to be back on your bicycle climb in the Dutch mountains. Neil, you're going to be on your own in uh, splendid isolation in your hotel in Riccione. And uh, until next week on the Paddock Pass podcast, uh, we better make sure that we're all, uh, for all of our listeners, a big thank you for listening to the show. And uh, for David, Neil, and for myself, um, we'll see you next week. Beautiful. Top work. Um, I'll just be back in two minutes. All right. I'm. I'm also. I'm also in need of uh, relief. So we can take a quick refreshment. Dave, break. are you all right? Yeah, I. I need a piss. <laughs> <laughs>